This is Gene Therapy for Hemophilia, Dream or Reality, a show on behalf of the Canadian Hemophilia Society. Here's your host, David Page. Today I have the privilege of welcoming Brian Omani, Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Hemophilia Society and a former president of the World Federation of Hemophilia and the European Hemophilia Consortium. Today's podcast is entitled, Who is Eligible for Hemophilia Gene Therapy? Welcome, Brian. Thank you, David. So, Brian, I think you're the ideal person to answer these questions. Your organization in Ireland, and in fact, all through Europe, they've been very proactive in educating members about gene therapy, and you yourself have been involved in a, in a gene therapy clinical trial. Could you tell us about how you've prepared your members for the arrival of this brand new therapy? Yeah, we tend to be quite proactive in terms of educating members about pipeline therapies for hemophilia generally. So they've been hearing about gene therapy for at least 10 years. It's 10 years since uh, we had the first companies coming over to Ireland talking about developing gene therapies, talking about clinical trials. And at the time, we were looking at potentially trial enrollment. So in fact, what we did at that time, rather than the companies appointing a lead investigator who would then speak to the people with hemophilia on a one-to-one basis, we would organize meetings events in the evening where they'd hear from the company, they'd hear from the clinician. And we found that that process of having group meetings, maybe 10, 15, 20 people, was very effective as a means of communication because literally somebody goes in, uh, if they're going in a one-to-one situation, you're leaving the meeting, you're thinking, was the doctor too optimistic, too pessimistic? I should have asked this question. I'm not sure I understood that. If you're in a group of people, somebody else will ask a question that you hadn't thought of at the time. So you got to actually get more information from that. So we've had those meetings over a number of years. We've also had information lectures at our events. So we've had scientific lectures on gene therapy. And then at a following conference, we might do a workshop. So for example, two years ago, we took uh, all of the, the people at one of our conferences to a workshop on gene therapy. We explained all the areas of uncertainty and what was unknown. And then at the end of the workshop, there was a stack of envelopes, steeled envelopes on a table, and they had to select one at random. And that was their personal outcome. So it was meant to show them that you can't predict your personal outcome. You have to be prepared for whatever it throws at you. So I I think we're currently looking very seriously at reimbursement of gene therapy. I don't want to roll out our formal education program until we have that agreed, because I don't want to bring people down an education program and then find that they can't get access to the gene therapy. So once that's done, and I would I predict that won't be too long, we'll roll out our education program, booklets, infographics, but also we'll continue those meetings. And I'm looking at a small group meetings in several locations around the country, eight locations plus Dublin. It's a small country. We know our members. So I'll be contacting every person who's theoretically eligible and then inviting them to meetings where we can discuss in groups and also discuss individually. I think you're suggesting that um, the gene therapy is not for everyone, either because of eligibility criteria or because they're just different people and have different needs and different expectations? Well, it's not for everyone. If you look at the eligibility criteria, first of all, I think about 60% of people with severe factor eight deficiency will not be eligible. And about 40% of those with severe factor nine deficiency will not be eligible. Why is that? Can you give us some the breakdown of some of those reasons? Well, first of all, you exclude children. So currently gene therapy is only licensed for those over the age of 18. And that's because the liver is not fully developed up to about age 14. So if you give gene therapy to a child 
and their liver cells turn over and they have new hepatocytes, those new hepatocytes will not express factors. So you may lose the gene therapy. So really, it's, it's, it's for adults, although there are starting trials now in 16 upwards, and they may eventually get to 12 or 14, but almost certainly not under 12. So you exclude the children with severe hemophilia. You exclude mild and moderate because this is really for severe hemophilia, although some would say moderate or moderately severe, so maybe less less than 2%. All the clinical trials have been male, so they've had no females in the clinical trial. Although when I look at the license for hemophilia B gene therapy from Canada, USA, and the EMA, it says adults. It doesn't say men, it says adults. So women are included in, in the license therapy. Those with a history of inhibitors or a current inhibitor, are excluded from the trials and they're also being excluded from the licensed gene therapy. I think possibly because they wonder if gene therapy would work in those patients, would it trigger the inhibitor, would it trigger a reaction? And also companies tend to pick the best candidates for a gene therapy trial. They want the best outcomes to showcase their product. So those inhibitors would be a higher risk. And there are other health-related exclusions, people with severe liver disease. So if you have somebody with unresolved hepatitis B or hepatitis C infection, or somebody with severe fibrosis or cirrhosis, they would also not be eligible for gene therapy because the gene therapy is primarily targeted at the liver. And finally, um, a big exclusion is if they have pre-existing antibodies to the AAV vector that's used. And a significant proportion of people will have antibodies, maybe 30% in many countries, for hemophilia A. But for hemophilia B, and so for hemophilia A, pre-existing antibodies are an exclusion criteria. For hemophilia B, uh, they're an exclusion criteria for some of the trials, but not for the currently licensed factor IX gene therapy called hemogenics, because they, they have actually dosed people with pre-existing antibodies and they found it's still effective, provided the antibody titer is not too high. That's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? I mean, for years we've heard that the AAV antibodies were uh, an exclusion, but in this case, uh, that, that may not be the case. Well, I think I think it was almost an accidental finding. They were doing, a, a, I think, a phase 2B study, and they found when they looked back, they developed a more sensitive test for antibodies, and they realized that several people in the previous part of the trial had actually been antibody positive at a low level and still uh, got a good factor expression. So um, in, in the phase 3 clinical trial, they found that of the 54 individuals, about half the individuals had pre-existing antibodies. Only one individual did not get a good response, and he had a very high antibody titer of over 1 in 3,000. Uh, and they found that if your antibody titer was under 700 or under 678, then you, you're likely to get a better response. So I think there will be – there's no formal cutoff, but I think realistically, uh, if they do an antibody titer test on people with hemophilia B before taking that licensed gene therapy, if their antibody titer is more than 1 in 700, I think they'll be reluctant to, to take or give them the gene therapy. Do these eligibility criteria which apply to the clinical trials, are they flowing over into the into the licensed products? Are there – are for antibodies, similar, uh, there's actually no exclusion criteria. criteria for example, Certainly for in the European license for the hemophilia B, even if you have a high antibody titer, their rationale being there was only one patient in the trial who had very high antibodies who actually did not get a good response. But most clinicians, I think, would say you check the antibody before and if it's, if it's high, you don't, you don't give the gene therapy. Most of the exclusion criteria would be the same. Age, antibody titer, previous inhibitor, uh, serious liver disease. Of, of course, with the hemophilia B, uh, there were no women in the clinical trial, but it's licensed for adults with severe hemophilia, so it's not just men. So I think it can be taken by women. There are subtle differences in the licensing, even between for the hemophilia B, between the FDA, the EMA, and Canada from yesterday. 
in the EMA, the hemophilia B gene therapy is licensed for severe or moderately severe hemophilia B. If the person requires prophylaxis or if they have a history of life-threatening bleeds or repeated serious spontaneous bleeds. Now, that covers, I think, many, many people, including many on demand. The Canadian license says that it's, it's a person who's on regular prophylaxis. So that seems to exclude people who are on demand treatment. Now, I think the vast majority of people who will be considered for gene therapy will, will switch from prophylaxis. But you might have the odd case, for example, where somebody has you know, repeated bleeding, maybe poor venous access, uh, and therefore can't manage prophylaxis, but is on-demand treatment. So you'd like to see them getting access to gene therapy as well. So that's really clear about the the exclusion criteria for clinical trials and for the product monographs. But there might be some other considerations that, without actually making a person ineligible uh, for gene therapy, should at least make a person think twice before going ahead and, and considering it. We want people when they're considering gene therapy to have make a fully informed decision. This is a this is a one-off therapy. You can only have this once. You can't be redosed, and it's in your system forever, whatever outcome you get. So it, it's it's an irreversible therapy, unlike any other hemophilia treatment. So we want people considering this very carefully. I don't want anybody rushing into this. We want them to consider it, to educate themselves about this, to have several discussions with their patient organization and obviously with their clinical team. So there are some considerations, maybe. At what age will the person like to take gene therapy? So if you think it will last maybe 10 years or more, do you want to take that in your 20s, maybe when you want to travel, or your 30s, when you've getting married, you've young kids, or your 40s? There might be different times, 50s, when you've got some joint damage. You have to use barrier contraception for six months to a year. So if, if you are in a position where you want to start a family, you'd have to put that off for probably a year if you're going to take gene therapy. What's the reason for that, Brian? The reason for that is that vector shedding, so that the viral vector can be in all of the body fluids, including semen. So they want to be sure that it's that the semen is no longer shedding AAV vector, uh, so that that can take several months. So as a precaution, they have to use barrier contraception. There's also a requirement not to take any alcohol for the first year and to be moderate in your intake of alcohol after that. And the reason for that, of course, is that you know the gene therapy is targeted at the liver. And alcohol targets the liver. So you don't want to put extra strain on the liver when you're already targeting the therapy at the liver. So you could be, you could be killing liver cells that are, that are actually producing factor eight or factor nine. Exactly. And, and the thing is that if you, if you take alcohol and you get an increase in your liver enzymes, that can actually be misread as transaminitis due to the gene therapy and they start you on a course of steroids, which you probably don't need. So it doesn't make any sense to, to take alcohol in the first year of gene therapy when they're monitoring liver health very, very closely. And I suppose if you're hoping to have a child, the use of a barrier of protection, well, you're, you're not going to be able to during that period at least. But not for a year, but 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 it's it's a year. It's not ten years, so it's one year. So I think so. It's a question of timing as well. I think the other point is is, is that if somebody is going to commit to this, they need to understand what the follow up is and and how many monitoring visits there are. So they need to plan that for their college, for their work, for their employment, whatever wherever they are in their life. They need to plan that, that to be able to to comply with that follow up. That's really important. Could you go into a bit more detail what that that follow up implies? First of all, in the you know, immediately following administration, how, how demanding is it then? Uh, and then over the long term, uh, you know, what is what is would be expected of someone down the road, five years, 10 years following gene, gene therapy? 
Well, I, I think uh, somebody who's considering gene therapy, you know, th- th- there was this notion out there, it's one injection, then you're done, right? So you never have to go to the center again. Nothing could be further than the truth because in the first year, there's a lot of monitoring. In the clinical trials, even more so, but even with the licensed gene therapy, you're probably talking a weekly blood test for the first three or six months in order to check the liver enzymes because what you want to avoid is the, the gene therapy is targeted at the liver it's quite natural for the liver to get a bit inflamed because of this. But that liver inflammation does not connotate severe liver disease. What it can do, however, is knock out the gene therapy. So if you start seeing any rise in the liver enzymes, you have to deal with that very quickly by giving the individual steroids. Uh, so you, you don't want to miss any rise in liver enzymes. And so that's at least once a week you're getting those tested for the first three months. And then you tend to be in maybe once a month for the, the rest of the first year. And then the, the monitoring visits ease off after that. But certainly for the first year, it's a lot more visits than you would take on any other therapy. This means that someone has to be close to that monitoring location, whether it's your local hemophilia treatment center or it could be another arrangement with with a lab that can take those blood draws and and, and produce the results quickly. Yeah, I think the centers have to start being a bit more innovative in their thinking because it's all very well to say that the person with hemophilia has to go in, you know, 25 times in the first year and you live several hours in the center. That's not really realistic. Now, there are some specialized blood tests that they'll definitely want you to go in for. But after that, if you're doing factor levels or you're doing liver enzymes, these are simple tests. So in, in Europe, they have a hub and spoke model where you have a, the major the hub center is the one that gives you the dosing and, and the, the main informed consent process. But then your local center would be the spoke center where you might go in there to get your blood tests, or your routine blood tests. And once there's good communication between the two centers, that should be absolutely fine. And in fact, I think the centers also have to think about perhaps, you know, facilitating that the patient coming in in the morning or the evening or, or sending a nurse to the home to take the bloods at home. Right. Well, you know, Canada is a huge country. And, and, and so certainly that latter uh, option of, of of sending the nurse to the home or going to a local center where they can do the blood draws would make things much easier. And then the long term. Now, once the year is up and you're not getting those tests anymore, it's not over, is it? No, but, but, but in fact, you don't want it to be over because I think people with hemophilia have grown up going at least once a year to their comprehensive care center, uh, if you like, for, for a full full workup. And I think you probably want to continue doing that. So with the gene therapy clinical trials, after year one, you go in twice a year. Now, perhaps with a licensed gene therapy, they might say after year one, you go in once a year. But I still think you need to keep doing those visits at least once a year, because of course, whatever factor level or expression you get, you can't assume that will stay uh, unchanged. So you need to get that checked at least once, if not twice a year. Uh, and you also want to uh, keep an eye on your liver health. You want to get uh, some ultrasound scans uh, and you want to get joint health scores and other measures, which in fact will not only help the individual, but will add to the core of knowledge in the community about the outcomes of gene therapy. And I think those people who are going to get the, the first couple of hundred people who are going to get a licensed gene therapy almost have a responsibility as well to help the community in terms of gathering information about short and long-term outcomes. Do you think that should be a formal commitment on the part of the person receiving you know, a very expensive therapy, a commitment to, to provide that information back to, to the community and, and, and to the researchers? First of all, the, the, the main benefit is to themselves because you need to monitor how you're getting on with gene therapy. It should be a formal understanding 
Now, I don't think you can make it a formal commitment because, frankly, if somebody if somebody gets gene therapy and nods and says, yes, I'll comply with all the visits and then disappears, there's very little you can do about it. But I think it needs to, as part of the informed consent process, it needs to be clearly understood by the person with haemophilia that there is a monitoring requirement here afterwards and it's really, really important, not just for yourself, but for the community that you comply with this. In closing, Brian, is there anything else you'd like our podcast listeners to know? No, I, I think uh, I, I think it's we've been talking about gene therapy for a long, long time. We had the World Federation Congress in Dublin in 1996, and the theme was from care to cure. And we had a lecture on gene therapy. It's taken a while. It's been that's 27 years ago, and I know that there are uncertainties and that there are things we don't know about gene therapy. But still, things have moved on remarkably. I, I was looking back at a talk I gave at the UK annual meeting in 2006. And at that time, we talked with great excitement about the possibility of a gene therapy, which would be a once a year injection, giving a factor level as high as 5%. That now seems not very optimistic. Our podcast series is entitled Hemophilia Gene Therapy, Dream or Reality. Which do you think it is? I think it's, I think at the moment it looks very much like a reality for him for the B, for him for the A. It looks uh, it looks like a very long sabbatical. Uh, I think you've seen a slow rollout in in even in high income countries to date. And I think for many people in in lower medium or medium income countries, it's not going to be reality for quite a while yet because of cost and also because actually in India, China, and South Africa about 90% of the population have antibodies to the vector, so they can't take the current generation of gene therapies. But I think it is it is a reality. It's not a reality for everybody. It's not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but maybe it's the end of the beginning because we have four generations of gene therapy to come. We have gene editing to come. Thank you, Brian, for doing this podcast and for all your work over many decades for the hemophilia and bleeding disorders community. Thank you, David. For more information on gene therapy, we invite you to check out other podcasts in the series Hemophilia Gene Therapy, Dream or Reality, including one called What's It Like to Receive Gene Therapy, in which Brian O'Mahony explores what that's like from the shared decision-making stage to administration through to follow-up. For more information, we invite you to check out more episodes in this series, Hemophilia Gene Therapy, Dream or Reality. This podcast series was made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Pfizer Canada to the Canadian Haemophilia Society.